You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Okay. So while you're waiting for the movers, can you just check it out and see okay. if you can figure out why everyone breaks their lease and leaves it? Sure. So I have taken everything that I think I know. Oh, so much stuff. And I have put them in a box for something to show. seen anything that you can't explain? I think I know why people keep eating your house. Why are you here? To fix the house? This house is not broken. Okay. The years, the years, the years go by. So you're a ghost. This one is not afraid. Have you forgotten how to structure a haunting? The years, the years, the years. So they sent you here, and your job is to scare people off. I have a lot of questions. Uh, how does one become a ghost? Can you walk through walls? You want a beer? Can ghosts have beer? The years keep on turning away. What do you all get from scaring people out of their homes? It's what we do. <laughs> really do not like this. This house was destined for me. They said that it called for me, that it had been waiting all of these years for me to make it complete. I know how hard it is to be alone. It might not make sense to you, but it is my purpose. It is a gift to feel so lucky to have something and to know that it is lucky to have you. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. On this episode, I am talking with two people behind the film A Ghost Waits from 2020, writer-director Adam Stovall and writer-actor McLeod Andrews. A Ghost Waits is currently streaming over on the Arrow channel and will be released on Blu-ray from Arrow May 3rd, 2021. Be sure to look for it. Enjoy this interview. I'm very curious, where did you guys meet? How did you come in contact with each other? This is Adam Stovall, a writer, director, producer, and a bunch of other stuff on Ghost Waits. We met on the set of another movie called Split, which is not the M. Night Shyamalan film, but a wonderful bowling romantic comedy by Jamie Bachner. McLeod was acting in it. I was the second AD. And we spied each other across a crowded karaoke bar and said, that guy, 
That seems like yeah. somebody I want to know. And uh, this is McLeod. You know, after sparking up a casual friendship uh, on set, Adam was like, I think this guy's a good actor and he's a fun person. Maybe he'll read my screenplay. And he sent me a screenplay of his. He sent me while I was in Michigan recording an audiobook, and, uh, you know, was just stuck in my Holiday Inn. I really loved the script that he sent me. I thought he was a terrific writer. And from that point forward, we've been trying to make movies together. So that was what, like 2015, 2016 when Split was filming? That was 2013. That was, uh, we shot November, December 2013. When was the second time you guys worked together? A ghost waits. <laughs> <laughs> that was 2013. And then in 2014, I ended up going out to LA for almost all of the year and ended up crashing with McLeod and kind of living with him for most of that year. That kind of, you know, it didn't intensified the friendship you know it's 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 kind of nice like when you meet somebody and you keep kind of waiting for like them to be like okay you're asking too much and they never do and at some point you're just like i think we're best friends now did we just become best friends yep and uh so i was staying with him and we were working on a uh there was another script that we were trying to make and we got pretty close or at least it felt like we got pretty close we were doing location scouts and talking to investors and we did a script read uh, a table read that i spent like a few months casting that went really well, but you know, just couldn't quite raise enough money. And you know, and it was it was really dispiriting when when we realized that it wasn't going to happen. But at the same time, like we became you know really close friends. There was one time we were working on his reel, so we were watching stuff, you know, all the stuff that he'd done. And I remember thinking, like, why does everybody make you crazy? Why do you always play crazy people? And realizing that. It's because McLeod's a phenomenally talented actor, and playing crazy is very difficult. So they're like, well, this guy can do it. But when you're just watching that, I was like, but I want to see you like do all of it. I want to see you fall in love and save the world and everything. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but like when A Ghost Waits became a viable project, a big part of it was like, I want to write something that I've never seen him do. I have now seen him do any, everything that's not theater. When did A Ghost Waits come about, and how did it come about? After that movie fell apart, I'd gone back to northern Kentucky, which is where I'm from. Uh, we're, bo- we're both Kentucky boys by, by nature. Like I said, it was really dispiriting. I kind of had my tail between my legs, and I had no idea what I was going to do next. And while I was there, my friends Brian and Jen Price had me come over to play this video game called PT, which is a first-person haunted house puzzle game. And I was making them laugh because I was reacting to a haunted house the way I would, where, you know, something really creepy happens. And I'm like, nope, just not going to investigate that whatsoever. I'm good. Which is also why I'm a bad gamer. I I have recently learned about something called walking simulators that apparently is what I should be doing. Because all I want to ever do is explore the world. and I don't want to fight or anything. Between that and there's a webcomic called Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial. And I saw one where, you know, guy asks this girl, uh, what do you think is the most American movie? And she says, Ghostbusters, because here's a movie where you have demonstrable proof of an afterlife. But the whole thing is about growing a small business and navigating government bureaucracy. And I thought, that's hilarious. But also, like, yeah, she's right. Like, a ghost story does mean that there's an afterlife. Why don't people explore that? I would have so many questions. And so between those two things, we kind of had the spine of what became a ghost waits. Which, you know, I was very accustomed to having ideas that went nowhere. 
but we'd we'd met this guy who one of the investors that wanted to make the previous film. He was talking to our mutual friend Nick Thurkettle and asked Nick what was going on, and he said, "Oh, I think Adam just had this like weird haunted house idea." And we got on the phone, and I I walked him through what I had of it because I didn't have a script yet. I just walked him through the story as I saw it, and he said, "Oh, that sounds really good. I'll you know I can put in X amount of dollars." And my mom had said, "You know, when you guys have a number, you know, let me know, and if we can match it, you know, if we can do that, we will." And so I called her and I said, "We have this." Um, if you can match it, I think we can make a movie. And she and her husband went and talked to their accountant. Uh, and a couple days later, called me back. And I was in Plum Street Cafe in downtown Cincinnati with Brian Price. And mom calls and I stepped out like, hey, mom, what's going on? And she said, we can do it. We'll send you the money tomorrow. And I just started crying and then realized I had to write a script. When is the first time you hear this story, this uh, ghost story? I think I was actually, at the time, I was in the middle of uh, reshoots on a film called The Siren. No, no. I mean, like, that was actually right before I went and shot principal photography. So when was it? I don't have a very good recall. I'm a terrible uh, interview <laughs> interviewee. Who am I? How'd I get here? I don't have any idea when first I... All I know is I love Adam. I love uh, <laughs> I love the script. And uh, I'm very happy <laughs> I did it. I probably texted you that I have an idea for a movie because I think that text happens every like at least once a month, probably. You know, McLeod and I have very similar senses of humor and we tend to find the same things interesting. So I emailed him kind of a a real quick outline of what I thought it was. Um, I don't know if you heard about it. There was originally a different ending, but like when I say originally, like it never even got to the script stage. Yeah, Um, because I was going to say I never I never even read the original ending. So. It was probably around Christmas 2015. Oh, yeah. We, we worked on this for like five years. It took five years to, you know, to really make this movie. Yeah. That's, I'm, not just, I'm not just an adult-minded actor. I, it's been a while. <laughs> since. <laughs> yeah. so, so if you're asking about the origins, I'm like, I don't even know who I was then. <laughs> <laughs> well, walk me through some of the things that it took to get this made, because that's always the fascinating story. I mean, that – it even got made, as you know, is a miracle. So what are those things that brought it to fruition? Depends on which stage you want to call fruition. So I'll let you start, Adam. I mean, my my, my, my pert, simple answer is friendship brought it to fruition. Perseverance. Uh, that's exactly it. Friendship and perseverance, just like absurd willpower. I've known since I was like eight that I want that like movies mattered more to me than others. And I, and then when I was like 14, I saw Pulp Fiction and that was like, oh, I want to do that. Movies are apparently far more elastic than I thought. Uh, I want to do that. But I would also like read interviews with filmmakers where they were like, if you can do anything else with your life and be happy, do that. Because this is so hard and there's so much rejection. And so I tried to do anything else. And I, you know, did a lot. Of, I mean, I basically spent my 20s just and a ceaseless string of jobs trying everything and nothing really took. And so this came about because I was in a really bad place. You know, our, our attempts at making a movie not working, like really took it out of me. And I started worrying that like it would never happen. And I felt like an existential mistake. I felt like I shouldn't be in the world. And so I knew like, this is the one thing I think I can do. And I need to know if I can do it. So when it became a viable project and we had the money and we had the script, you know, okay, we don't have a lot of money. It's a very small budget, but that can't be an excuse. 
You know, like money isn't everything. Let's think about what money has to be spent on and we'll spend it on that. But if money doesn't have to be spent on something, let's forego it. You know, that was one, uh, I learned a lot on split. And one of the things I learned about, uh, or one of the key lessons was where money has to go and where money goes out of habit. When we kind of launched into this, into this endeavor, I was basically fighting for my life. I really, I was at a point where I was really thinking about killing myself. I've struggled with, uh, with depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation most of my life. You know, it's a very, it's a very real thing and it's wallpaper. It's always there. Sometimes it gets especially, um, acute and intense. And in this case, yeah, we, okay, we need a place. We need, uh, we need people to act out scenes. We need a place for that, for them to be. We need, uh, the materials to record those scenes. And that is what we need. So we've got really lucky and John Mark James, you know, reached out about like, Hey, you can shoot in my house and didn't charge us anything. You know, I paid his power bill because we were using a lot of it, but he was always very patient and generous with us. You know, Mike Potter, who shot it, you know, I have a, a Blackmagic Pocket Cinema, which is a camera, which is a digital 16. He was using his Blackmagic Ursa Mini, which is a 4K. Like, people were bringing their own stuff. Natalie, that dress that Natalie wears as Burial is, you know, she had gone home to Virginia and, like, found it, you know, she'd gone through her old, as she, I remember her telling me that, like, in school, she'd gone through a Gossip Girl phase and, you know, wanted to be late in Meester. So this was, like, one of her Blair dresses. Everybody brought a lot of themselves because they had to. And then I just felt like it's Pete Sampras throwing up on the tennis court. You have to leave it all there and you can't, uh, you can't leave any excuses because I don't, I didn't know what would come next. You know, and it's like, oh, I, you know, I made a bad movie because we didn't have money or I made a bad movie because I couldn't find the right actors or I made a bad movie because like none of that could be a viable thing. So it was just like, well, okay. So I just have to work myself to death and work my, you know, my, to, you know, work myself to the bone to make this the best it could be and trust, you know, and find collaborators that understood our, our limitations and didn't. And also, I mean, to be completely honest, some of them did view that as a reason to phone it in, but a lot of them really kind of caught the bug of our passion. You know, and really put a lot of themselves into it far more than they ever had before, you know, and it's, it's why like now, I mean, we just keep getting lucky and it's just, it's a miracle this movie works and all of this stuff. But like, it's also because we had really great collaborators who wanted to be a part of something special. It sounds like McLeod was always going to be part of this, but I am curious, where did you find Natalie and Sydney and Amanda who are, you know, major players in this as well? I found Natalie on Twitter. She had posted this synopsis of Phantom of the Opera that was just like the funniest thing I'd read. And I, I followed her after that. And I had originally written Muriel for a friend of ours and she got cast on a TV show and wasn't available. And so, you know, you kind of go back to the, the whiteboard of like, all right, who are we going to, who are we going to get? And, you know, we cast locally. Uh, a lot. Sydney came in because she was a local actor who had uh, who worked on a couple features, had like very like kind of bit roles in some in a couple of features that shot there in Cincinnati. Amanda Miller was a regional actress out of Dayton, Ohio, that I'd seen in a bunch of short films, and she was always the best part of them. So I knew that I wanted to work with her and wrote Ms. Henry for her. I got online and started thinking about who was going to play Muriel, 
I saw Natalie and I was like, oh, right. She's also an actor. So I went to her website and hoping that there would be like clips or a reel or something. And there, there, there weren't. So, but her email was on it. So I emailed her and said, hi, my name's Adam. Uh, I'm making this little movie in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I think you might be, uh, really, uh, good for the lead, the female lead. Would it be okay if I sent you the script and you could check it out and see if it's something you're interested in? And she said, yes, please. And I sent it and she read it and she really loved it. And she did a self tape and like the moment it begins, like McLeod and I were both just like, Oh, that's, that's Muriel. Yeah. Hi, Muriel. And so the next day she and I got on FaceTime and offered her the role and flew her in, you know, like a month later or something or whatever it was. So that's how we found Amanda, Sydney and Natalie. Tim, who plays the pizza guy, was just a friend on social media that I happened to post like, hey, who wants to be in a – anybody got tomorrow off and want to be in a haunted house movie? And he said yes. Even the families, the, 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 the montage, you know, the people in the montages and the family at the beginning – Jeremy, who's the dad of the family at the beginning, after the panel, we had done a script read of the like award winning script uh, for that festival. And so we were both a part of that. And we just so, you know, just stayed in touch. And I I told him like, hey, I need a family. Can I borrow yours? Mm -hmm. And he brought him over. And then but yeah, like the entire closing montage is just friends that wanted to be a part of it and could come in for an hour, you know, or, or some or even less sometimes. And then I play Neil because I knew I could afford myself and I'd be there on the day. There was never another Jack in my head. If McLeod had said he didn't think this was interesting, a Ghostweights just wouldn't exist. It was always our, our, our desire to make a movie is almost second to our desire to make a movie together, I think. McLeod, where did you find the character of Jack? How close is he to you? I think in mannerisms, quite close. In sense of humor and I guess just kind of curiosity, worldview, philosophy – in some ways, when it comes to matters of existentialism, and that actually cleaves quite closely. Uh, you know, I had been coming off of They Look Like People and The Siren, where I did have to do a lot of character work to kind of find the characters. They were, uh, in a lot of ways, very different from myself. So uh, kind of like Adam said earlier about wanting to see me fall in love and save the world and all these things. Uh, I was looking forward to playing a character that was a little bit closer to self, uh, a little bit more transparent. I don't know if you've seen They Look Like People in the Siren, but both of those characters are very kind of close to the chest and taciturn. Uh, so I was excited to play somebody a little bit more verbose, uh, a little bit more accessible. And so in that regard, I just I just tried to drop as many guards as I had, as many defense mechanisms as I had, and just meet every scene with as much honesty and sense of humor and vulnerability as I could. I think one aspect that we did have to find together, or at least that I just had to listen to understand better, was Jack's depression and how it manifests, how it's how it's presented. I've While I've been very depressed at times in my life, I don't I, I don't consider myself to be depressed. I, I don't suffer from depression uh, chemically uh, anyway, or at least I've never been diagnosed for it or felt the need to be. Uh, so that was something I had to, I think, just listen and learn from Adam. And, and you know, because Jack's a very charismatic guy. And we for much of the film, we see him not, you know, wearing his depression or his sadness on his sleeve. 
And so as somebody who doesn't suffer from, from depression, I, I needed to understand that better and understand the choice not to show the audience those feelings. And so Adam and I had a lot of good conversations about that. I think at times we, we found a couple of scenes where, where even if Jack's not showing it, the camera needed to, the camera needed to kind of peer in on him and catch it from time to time. But yeah, so that, that was an aspect that I think I needed to, that Adam and I needed to talk through. But by and large, even then, I mean, it's like you don't play depressed. I don't, I don't, I, I didn't go into any scene ever being like, okay, this is my depression scene. You, you kind of tell that through the character's actions and, and reactions to, to what they're experiencing. So in a way, I tried really hard not to play a character. And for a ghost waits, if I could, I wanted to just be as grounded and honest as I could. There is such a great theme in the film of music. And I have to ask about the songs, where they came from, who was performing those. I love just that music kind of infiltrates the whole film. Like I said, I've wanted to make a movie for a very long time. And, you know, I was, uh, you know, when you're an aspiring filmmaker, you kind of think a lot about like, what would my movie be? What do I, you know, and I love soundtracks. Music's a huge part of my life anyway, but I, I also just really uh, love when a film uses music well. And so I knew I wanted it to be a key element. I also like spent my twenties going to live music. So I like constantly. So I know a lot of musicians. So when this became, you know, a thing, I was able to kind of reach out just like, Hey, you know, can I, can I get a song? And often can I get this specific song? Wussy, whose song Yellow Cotton Dress kind of carries, you know, it, he listens to it, he plays it, and then it plays over the credits. I've known them since before they started the band. Um, and when we decided, because there actually was going to be a different song when, when he's cleaning, but uh, I could never get the rights. I could never get the person to confirm that I had the rights. And that's fine when it's plug and play. But once we decided in the pickups that he was going to actually perform the song in the movie, like you can't, you have to have it. So I just messaged Mark Messerly, who is one of the members of Wussy and said, Hey, can I have a yellow cotton dress? And he reached out to Chuck and Lisa and like 15 minutes later, I was like, yep, it's yours. And so we went to a pawn shop and got a guitar from a cloud so he could learn the song. Punk Kid by Honey Honey, which plays a couple of times. I love Honey Honey. We've been friends for about 10 years now, actually, a little over. And they have been in the fortunate position that like their albums always were made by a label. But that means that all of their stuff is owned by labels, except for that one song. And so I was like, hey, can I have Punk Kid, please? It's the only one I can afford. Sort of. <laughs> yeah. The song that plays at the end and when they're in the garage is Years Go By by the Bangsons. They were workshopping. They were in Cincinnati workshopping a show called 100 Days at the No Theater, which is a fantastic theater in Cincinnati. Uh, my then girlfriend and I went and saw it and just fell madly in love with it. And I happened to meet them standing in line for coffee a couple days later and said like, Hey, if I ever get to make a movie, can I use your music? And they were like, that sounds cool. So when this again became a thing, I emailed like, Hey, for this amount of money, like, can I get years go by? Cause you know, like I said, I wrote this thing by a seat of my pants. Uh, she and I were out, uh, then girlfriend, she and I were out one night just having some drinks talking and suddenly in my head, like, 
I just saw the garage. I saw that scene and I heard years go by playing and I was like, oh my God, I know how it ends. And so I sat down and very coolly wrote an email that was like, hey, it's no big deal, but can I get years go by? Uh, and they said, yes. And I did a dance. If I can pull this moment off, we'll have a movie. Let's see what else is there. CD Seeds, Margaret Darling, who did some of the score and we have a CD Seed song in the, in the movie. Um, that's another friend, Cincinnati based band. You know, who I just love their stuff and I wanted them to be a part of it. I think Margaret is a fantastically talented musician. She's she's kind of leaving it behind as she moves into a new phase of her life because they have a very like radio heady approach where it's very mathematic uh, to music. And that's kind of what you need in a score. I mean, there's no monolithic what you need, but like I thought that it would be interesting. And so I got to work with her and like, which is just like the coolest thing when you get to like working with musicians that you love and respect and like writing a song with her. You know, she and I wrote the song that Natalie sings at the end uh, together, you know, and then Mitch, who did, who's the other composer on it, was at the world premiere at Fright Fest Glasgow. And McLeod and I had kind of been talking about you know the movie needing needing some more music and he had sent me some stuff because we i was on his podcast and we uh we stayed friends and he sent me some stuff he was working on and i was like oh this is dope like i'm gonna send this to mcleod and mcleod said oh it's a shame we can't ask him to do some music for the movie and i was like well why can't we (laughs) and that went really well when did you actually shoot this what year was that principal photography was august it was 12 days in august 2016 in the middle of a heat wave and a house with no air conditioning, which is an awesome thing to do. And I recommend it highly. And then we did a set of pickups because I edited the movie. And once I had cut it together and the assembly cut was like an hour and 50 minutes and it was bad. But once we got it into like fighting shape, we realized that like from minute 34 on we were solid, but we didn't earn it with the first 33. So we, we kind of, um, and we didn't have any money left. So we couldn't fly anybody back. We couldn't bring anybody back. So McLeod flew himself back to Cincinnati. We, and John let us, you know, back into the house. And we did four days of pickups in April 2017 and then edited that in, got more notes. We hadn't planned to do any more, but then in the notes process realized, oh, like some of the stuff just isn't landing. The idea isn't clear. Or at least not We're going to need to. Yeah. We're going to need to do this again. And so we, we went back to Cincinnati in February 2018 and shot for like three or four days and figured out how to kind of make the points that weren't being made well already. Um, so overall, over the course of three years, it's like 12 plus four, plus, so almost 20 days. McLeod, did you ever see yourself spending so much time in Cincinnati? Probably not. I, I think I did. It was lovely. I, I actually really enjoyed the times I get, got to go back. And actually, a lot of the time uh, was spent just across the river in Covington uh, in northern Kentucky, uh, which is a lovely town. I really recommend going there if you want to just have a relaxing time in a piece of America you wouldn't necessarily have thought of. Yeah, it's, it was really, really great. I'm from Louisville, so, I, you know, it's familiar country to me. And I saw some of those. I, I I managed some of those reissues to tie back into going to see family and seeing my niece and nephew because it's coming uh, Cincinnati and Covington. It's like an hour and a half, two hours northeast of Louisville. So yeah, yeah it, was, it was great. Uh, Cincinnati is a pretty cool town, so um, that was really nice. And I I recommend trying to uh, get a sausage. It's good stuff. 
What is the life of the film once it's done? Our first real screening, we did a friends and family screening for my 40th birthday in November 2018 to get kind of a sense of what people are responding to. And then a couple weeks later, we did another friends and family here in uh, Queens, where I live in New York. A couple months after that, I flew out to LA for a week and we 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 screened it uh, a couple nights. We had some friends. I'd gotten this Airbnb that had a projector and a screen. Um, so we had some friends come over uh, the first two nights I was there and give us our give us their thoughts. And then we just like very it was like boot camp. Like just I would wake up at six a.m. and edit. Uh, and then I would, he would get over to the Airbnb around like 10, 10 30. Uh, I would render while we went to breakfast, come back, watch it, make notes again, uh, or make notes and then start editing again. And we did that every day for a week. Yeah. I think then maybe we started, I, I um, think we, we started submitting sooner than that. We got some rejections and, and weren't really sure, you know, what was going to come of it, uh, you know, got notes, got back to work on the edit. Yeah. Uh, I think by that time, I think a whole nother year maybe had gone by since our first submission. So we submitted yeah. to some a second time. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. To others. Um, I, once we were finished with, I don't, I'm trying to remember when I started the sound design. I guess I must have started it for one of the earlier cuts because otherwise we wouldn't have screened it without a sound design. Wow. Uh, I just, I just, I guess there was just a, a week after that week in Los Angeles or two week or two weeks that I dedicated to revisiting the sound design. I mean, the sound design wasn't even, wasn't, we kept tweaking cause that was one thing we could keep on working on throughout. So even after we got into Fright Fest, like uh, we were still, even after it's Scream Fest, we were still tweaking some things in the sound design and with the score yeah. and with the, uh, like just uh, soundtrack. Uh, pretty much right up until we delivered it to our distributor. Yeah, um, actually, we were joking about like when it premiered on Arrow on February 1st, that was the first time anyone had really seen the final cut because we made changes even after uh, Scream Fest and everything. So yeah, it's a really fascinating process. Like I, I had no idea, even though I, you know, studied film for so long and and wanted to do this, I really had no idea like just how ongoing it is. You know, you hear stories about like J.J. Abrams finishing Star Wars like six days before they premiered or something or even less, I think. Yeah, you just you tinker and, you know, you're always trying to make it the best it can be. When we screened at Scream Fest, that was the first time I remember like sitting there in the car because they did a drive in style so that they could still have a a an in-person festival during this horrific time. Uh, And that was the first time it felt like a movie. It, like it was, it wasn't a project anymore, you know. Because for the longest time, it was like, oh, it's that thing that lives on my laptop. Yeah, and that was the time when it was just like, this is a movie. Holy crap! Uh, and then it was really nice afterwards. You know, some people that we that we know like came up and they had watched a lot of cuts throughout the process, and they were also saying like, oh, that's a movie. Like you guys, you guys did some work, but you're just constantly tinkering. You're constantly, and it's just like. Can I, do I move this fractions of a second? Like, mm-hmm. is it better if it comes in three frames later? My mom, being an executive producer, I showed her one time, like, the editing process, and her husband <laughs> just said, like, nope, and walked away. <laughs> and my mom was like, wow, this is tedious. And it's like, yeah, 
yeah, it is. And it'll drive you crazy. But like, God, when it finally clicks into place, oh, the best. I don't want to sound trite or anything, but one thing that really helps us feel like a movie is that beautiful poster art that you have. And I have to ask, where did that come from? That is just gorgeous. This poster is done by a really amazing artist named Julie Hill. She was a friend of mine in Cincinnati. She's in, you know, she now lives in Austin, Texas. She spends a lot of time in Michigan because that's where she grew up, but I think she still lives in te- in Austin. We just we've been friends for a very long time. She did the cover for the Heartless Bastards All This Time album. I just think she's amazing. And I remember when The Shape of Water came out, seeing the alt poster at AMC Lincoln Square that was hand drawn and taking a picture and sending it to her just like, hey, if we get like this, this, this should be our movie poster. I want something, you know, I love (laughs) a hand drawn movie poster. I love it. It's just and, and especially for something like this, that's like very small and DIY. It felt right. When it was ready to be shown, I, I sent her uh, a screener link and she watched it and that's what she came up with is uh, is that artwork. And then when Arrow acquired it, they wanted to commission some new artwork. So I put out a call on social media um, asking for female or non-binary artists, graphic artists who love movie posters to get in touch because quite frankly enough dudes have worked on this movie. We got to find balance where we can. And Sister Hyde, who is this amazing graphic artist, reached out through Twitter and looked at her site and was just like, oh, yeah, no, you have to. Yep. Yes. Uh, and so I told Arrow that I wanted to, to go with her. They, they reach out and, you know, she came up with uh, the art that is the main key art of uh, the of their release. But the Blu-ray has a reversible sleeve where uh, you can also, if you turn it inside out julie's art is also there and can be the cover like it is it's so yeah. happy the blu-ray is frigging beautiful it's it makes me want to it, it makes me misty how has the pandemic affected you guys i mean mcleod with you being a working actor have you been able to do much of anything not on camera but i do a lot of audiobooks have for the past decade I am counting my lucky stars that that's that's an area that has been virtually untouched by the pandemic. I mean, I think I heard that numbers, sales numbers were a little bit down because people aren't in their cars as much as they are. And that's where people listen to in their commutes is when people listen to a lot of audiobooks. But fortunately, it, it hasn't really taken a bite into my schedule. And I, I had this prefab booth that was built um, by Scott Peterson sitting in my back when I lived in a one bedroom apartment. It was in the closet with no AC. And so I wouldn't do books there, but I had it for a rainy day. Uh, and it started raining. So I improved it and uh, have just been, been able to work from home. So I've been very fortunate in that regard. Our world premiere was Fright Fest Glasgow, and that was the penultimate festival to happen before everything shut down. It was Glasgow, True False, and then nothing. I went over there, I spent a week in London, come back to New York, and by that point, like, things were definitely, you know, like, I have the weirdest impression of London, because when I went, it was <laughs> empty and quiet, and there were no lines anywhere, and, but, so I got back, and I had been planning to quarantine, you know, to self-isolate for 12, 14 days, and 12 days in, Governor Cuomo decided that we all needed to self-isolate, and so I just didn't leave my apartment for, like, a couple months, uh, until I could go get uh, my antibodies test 
in May last year. But the response at the at Glasgow was so amazing that we had companies reach out like, hey, you know, we want to see the movie. And then they would see that it was a black and white, weird little re- relationship you know, horror rom-com, but like black and white, it's a huge deal breaker for people. So we got a lot of no's, but one of the companies was interested in other stuff. So they took an interest in a, a kind of a script fragment that I had. Uh, I had an idea that I had written as a pilot and then decided to develop as a feature. And so it was like 20 pages of a feature and they were like, Hey, we like this, write more. And so I kind of sprinted to finish a first draft of that, uh, which it turns out doesn't have a second act. So I've been working on that, but like, it's been a great distraction because, mm-hmm. you know, the the response to this has been so amazing that, you know, I haven't had, you know, I know a lot of friends who are reading a ton and watching a lot and like, you know, everybody has their projects and like, I didn't, I didn't make a single banana bread loaf because I just didn't have time. You know, I never had time to really dwell on what was happening. And every time I did, something would come up and, and you know, I get really despondent about the state of things. And then somebody would email and say like, Hey, we need you to do this. I like to burrow in and just like lose myself in work. So I was able to do a lot of that. And I mean, like in terms of just the film itself, we are indescribably indebted to film festivals finding ways to still exist uh, digitally because even, even as for as well as Glasgow went, you know, uh, we, we kind of, the, the life of the film sort of, you know, got a little bit stuck in the mud of the, of the pandemic and, you know, there, there wasn't much movement and it was, it was Fright Fest deciding to program us in London, but then also more than that, putting in the legwork to actually still have a festival at all and do it digitally. I mean, the response to the digital festival and specifically to our film at it was tremendous. I mean, it, it, I think if I had to pick like a moment that changed everything, it was probably the screening the digital screening at Fright Fest London, yeah. uh, where things really – people started to really take serious attention of the film. The response on social media was astounding. And then for Total Film Magazine to give us best actor, best director, and best picture, that was a shot in the arm. That like, Yeah, and I think Total Film giving us those awards is – that and Adam's just – relationship with with arrow is responsible for us getting distribution uh, more or less i mean and then like you know we did scream fest for our u.s premiere and again just like the fact that they tirelessly worked to find a way to safely still have a festival and they did a you know a drive-in which honestly my response when they said we think we're gonna have to do a drive-in i was like dream come true are you kidding me like what could be a better venue for horror films specifically but also even even more granular kind of obscure horror films like ours like this is a dream come true and they were like well we're gonna wait and see and maybe still do it in a theater and i'm like i don't care if it's a pandemic do it in a drive-in <laughs> <laughs> and they did and uh again we won best director best actor best film uh at screen fest and I mean, really, I, I, I can't reiterate enough. The film would not we would not be here talking about this film if not for festivals and for them finding a way to get films to their audiences despite the lockdowns. Well, I think the Blu-ray was announced, if not today, very recently. Today. Today. Yeah. And it's coming out, <laughs> what, May 2021? May 3rd. 
May 3rd. That's fantastic. Uh, any uh, hidden extras or bonus features on there? Bonus features are not hidden. There's a bunch of those. We have eight cast and crew interviews that uh, my friend T.T. Sternenzi, who's a film critic and a festival programmer, did. We have three commentaries, one McLeod and, and me, one cast and crew, and then one that's me and my friend Corey that's kind of more about the like emotional experience of making your first film. Uh, she's one of my best friends and was there for the entire thing. And actually the the ghost realm, when they go – like Natalie, not, Muriel's place with the exposed brick in the ghost realm is Corey's apartment. It was her old condo. There's outtakes. There's a video essay by Isabel Custodio, who does the Be Kind Rewind YouTube channel. Uh, that's all about the subgenre of kind of ghostly romance. There, there are a couple Easter eggs. If you go to the correct spot and press the right button, you'll yep. you find some the right directional button, not the correct button. I was trying to be friggin' <laughs> cryptic and like puzzle solvey. <laughs> Because it's a double entendre, Adam. I always forget to double my entendres. Oh, and we also have the inter- the Frightfest TV interview and Q&A, post-screening Q&A from Frightfest Glasgow that Alan Jones did with me. That was so much fun. You can watch me cry. Because <laughs> he was like, how does this feel? And I was just like, oh my god. Yeah, it's packed. And then if you go to arrow-player.com and sign up, for their streaming service, there's a few exclusive features that's on there and more to come, actually. I love bonus features. I love physical media, as you can tell. And so when Arrow, whose bread and butter is that, were interested, I was just like, oh, man, I may never get to make a second Blu-ray. Let's do this. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you. Movies of this size live and die by word of mouth. So it really, uh, it means the world to us when people want to take time to sit and talk about it, you know, and kind of lets us know that we're not wasting our time.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.